0: Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come uh, to another set of controversies on the Sabbath. Since the beginning of chapter 4, every event Luke has recounted has been on a Sabbath, and many of the events, but not all of them, but many of the events uh, involve conflict. So over the last three weeks, we've seen Jesus forgive and heal a paralytic, which raised the charge of blasphemy among his opponents, the Pharisees and scribes, who were, as the self-appointed gatekeepers of Israel, sitting in judgment over him. I mean, after all, only God can forgive sins. That's the blasphemy charge. And here, Jesus was claiming to do that very thing. And we've seen Jesus call Matthew a, a disreputable tax collector, to put it mildly, I uh, call him to follow Jesus. And in turn, Jesus enjoyed a feast thrown in his honor by Matthew among his, uh, his newly called disciples and a grab bag of, of morally uh, unacceptable low lives. And then in turn, we've seen Jesus warn his opponents who called into question not only his status as the Son of God, but his disciples' religious practices. If you remember, they, they don't fast and pray, they eat and they, they drink that is is, they're gluttons and their drunks, which was in turn a criticism of Jesus himself as an unfaithful teacher and a rebellious son of Israel, charges that would be thrown at him at his arrest and his trial at the end of his ministry and lead to his death. And in response, Jesus, I think, graciously warned them that unless they accepted the terms of the new covenant in him, though the old covenant was very good, they would not have life in God. Well, that's the review and it takes us all the way up to Luke chapter 6 verses 1 through 11 that again deals with the Sabbath and it covers two different sabbaths with two different attacks on Jesus but with just one answer. That Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, let me read for us. Luke chapter 6 beginning with verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man, is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them, at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Well, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, because Jesus lives, we gather together. We don't gather together because we think it is a nice story or because it is some kind of metaphor for renewal. We gather together because we believe the truth that Jesus was raised literally from the dead. And because of that, the world was changed, and here we are. So we pray that through your Son and the power of the Spirit, we might have eyes to see and ears to hear and feet to follow, hearts that will turn to You and listen and love You in response to Your great love that You have shown through Jesus Christ to us. We pray all of this in His name, through the power of that same Spirit, Amen. Well, Luke puts together two separate attacks by Jesus' opponents that result in Jesus demonstrating that He is the Son of Man. And Jesus, by using that title, purposely connects himself with Daniel 7 and the God-man who is worshiped alongside the Ancient of Days. He, Jesus, then, is Lord of the Sabbath. It is a claim to divinity. Now, this doesn't really resonate with us because the notion of Sabbath is taken lightly among American Christians. And if I were being charitable, uh, many Christians simply don't understand its importance in scripture and mistakenly relegate it to the Old Testament as if it were an outmoded uh, religious practice. I mean, after all, breaking the Sabbath under Moses uh, carried the death penalty, and, and we certainly don't think that now. But probably more so, Christians tend to disregard the Sabbath because we think we have a right to define our time however we want. And so we will slot God's commandment into our lives whenever we think it's convenient to our schedule. But not only was Sabbath taken incredibly seriously by Jesus, I mean, after all, it was his Father's law. It is one of the Ten Commandments. It's the central concern of this whole section in Luke and has real bearing on what Jesus' death and resurrection means and what it actually accomplishes. So it's worth uh, taking just a few minutes to talk through why, why Sabbath is so important and is so important to Jesus. Now, as an aside, I, before, everything I'm getting ready to say is indebted to a lot of different scholars, so I don't want to take credit uh, where credit is not due to me, but Arthur Just and his commentary really helped uh, shape my mind on how I'm, I'm getting ready to just kind of structure what I'm getting ready to say. Well, that said, the original audience for Luke's gospel, who who would have been Christians, it would have been Christians who were the first ones reading this gospel, they would have known that the movement, or really the change, from Sabbath worship on the seventh day, according to the law, to Sabbath on the eighth day, or the first day of the week, is a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. When you read uh, the seven days of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, The Sabbath is the only day that does not include the phrase, it was evening and morning the seventh day. Every other day says that. All six leading up to that use that exact same uh, repetition. Uh, Instead, what you find is that God rested from all his work and set the seventh day apart as holy, with the implication that the Sabbath never ends. The Sabbath, then, is, is uniquely different from the other previous six days of creation. And the pattern of six days plus Sabbath is, is of course, as I just mentioned, one of the Ten Commandments, and for, for the reason that, that the people of God, living in communion with Him, are commanded to structure their time and their life and their work on God's own pattern of time and work. And this pattern, that it's not arbitrary. It's built into the structure of creation, or so says God. But by the time you get to Deuteronomy 5, which is the restatement or the re-giving of the Ten Commandments to the generation getting ready to take the Promised Land, that is the children of, of the generation that originally received the Ten Commandments, so a generation later, the command to keep the Sabbath is the same. But the reason for keeping the Sabbath has grown to include the Exodus and Israel's salvation from slavery and oppression So in other words, because God saved Israel, giving her rest in Him, therefore keep the Sabbath. And what's interesting is that God's salvation of Israel is entirely God's work. Think about that. It's entirely God's work. And since the fall into sin, redeeming humanity and creation itself is a work that God has not stopped doing even on the Sabbath. It's why in response to his critics over yet another uh, Sabbath controversy in John 5:17, Jesus says, my father is working still and I am working. So the Sabbath is not only about patterning our lives after God's own life. As Deuteronomy makes clear, it has the added meaning of God's salvation of his people, the gift of rest in him. And it is a work that God has not stopped doing all the way up to this present moment. And as we've seen throughout the series, the eighth day, like the command with circumcision that was completed on the eighth day of an infant boy's life. The eighth day is a symbol of new creation. Think of it this way. The old week, six days plus one, Sabbath. The old week is over. And on the eighth day, or the first day of the week, a new week has begun. So just as we saw last week with the parable Jesus told, comparing uh, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in terms of old wine and old wineskins and old garments, as good as those things were, and under the Mosaic Covenant, they were very good. They were being replaced with new wine, new wineskins and new garments, the symbol then of circumcision in the Old Covenant, for example, was moving to the reality of a circumcised heart through the Spirit in the New Covenant. That's why the Old is a shadow of what is to come in the New and what finds its fulfillment in Christ. So too, the world that God created in six days with the Sabbath rest in Jesus is now giving way to the promised salvation that would bring forth new creation in the Messiah. the eighth day so think of it this way humanity was created on the sixth day of Genesis 1 and in terms of the pattern of the days of creation humanity fell into sin on that same day never reaching Sabbath rest with God Jesus was crucified on the sixth day on the seventh Sabbath day he rested in the ground And on the eighth day, or as we would say, the first day of the week, he was raised, ushering in new creation. That's what's in view. That's what's in view. That's why Sabbath still matters for those living in the new covenant with Jesus. And why Sabbath worship on the eighth day, or the first day of the week, is a tangible sign that we are really and truly living in the new creation right now. Now, though obviously it's not yet fully here. There's way more, believe it or not, there is so much more we could say about this stuff, but it's sufficient to say that at the heart of these two controversies in Luke is not some arcane argument over how much work a person can do or not do on the Sabbath. Those are the kinds of debates the Pharisees and scribes wanted to have, but Jesus wasn't. He was not going to have those debates. No, Jesus changed the terms of the debate and made the question about the new covenant and him and who he claimed to be. Now, with all that said, we're in a position to understand what's going on with these two events much better. So, if the previous passage with the feast at Matthew's house highlighted the giving of wine, in our passage, bread, the giving of bread is highlighted. As we read in in chapter 6, verse 1... On a Sabbath, Jesus and His disciples were walking through a grain field, and some of the disciples plucked a few heads of grain and just rubbed them in their heads, in their hands, and then presumably they they ate them. Now, apparently some Pharisees, watching them, or apparently it seems like they were monitoring, if not kind of stalking them, said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now I'm not going to belabor this, but by this point in Israel's history, the thinking from the initial command in the wilderness not to gather manna and quail on the Sabbath had come to include a large body of legal commentary on what counts as gathering or preparing food on the Sabbath. You can still read these things if you wanted to, and it's, it's, it's immense. So even though the law does not say you cannot pluck heads, of grain and eat them, in the Pharisees' mind, and according to this this legal tradition that had built up around the law, what they were witnessing was work. Now, in response, Jesus does not accept their terms. He doesn't debate uh, whether His disciples were working or not. He asks them instead to interpret a seemingly unrelated passage of Scripture. He points to uh, 1 Samuel 21. When David was on the run from King Saul and in his desperation and hunger was given the bread of the presence or the show bread that was in the tabernacle and that only priests could eat. So the bread of the presence was to be perpetually before the presence of the Lord in the holy place in the tabernacle. It was 12 cakes or or loaves of of bread lined up in two lines and it was made fresh every day. Sabbath, and the reason for the bread was that it pointed back to the manna in the wilderness and was a pledge of the covenant between God and Israel that God would always be faithful to Israel and would take care of all her needs. Well, it was not lawful for David and his men to eat this bread, and yet David assured the high priest at that time, Ahimelech, that he and his men had kept themselves holy in the sense of of kind of a Nazarite-type vow. And in turn, he took the loaves and distributed it to his men. So Jesus' question was forcing his opponents to answer the question, was it lawful for David to do this? To which the answer must be, no. No, it wasn't. And yet the Pharisees say nothing. Now, Jesus assumed two things as he asked that question. First, events in the life of David anticipate events in the life of the Messiah, the son of David. Now, this was something his opponents assumed too. They assumed the very same thing. And everyone knew that God had made a covenant with David and promised him that a man would sit on his throne forever, one of his son, one of his offspring. That means that David was the model for the Messiah, and like David, the Messiah would also be a priestly-type king. This is why the Pharisees are unwilling to say David broke the law. David was clearly different. He was clearly different than the typical Jew. Now, the second thing Jesus assumed is that he's that guy. He's the Messiah. As the heir of David, he has a right the bread of the presence, and like David, he is a priestly king who can disperse the holy bread of the covenant to his people. This is why, in John chapter 6, with the feeding of the 5,000, in the wilderness, no less, Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life, like the bread of heaven, like manna. He is the showbread of the tabernacle given for the life of his people. So what David did with the bread of the presence You know, the holy bread made new every Sabbath. Jesus does with grain that is not yet bread on the Sabbath. If it was lawful for David, the forerunner of the Messiah, then it is lawful lawful for David's son and heir who is the Messiah. So because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and he just straight up says it, he lawfully brings new wine and distributes new bread. Now, with the second controversy, Jesus was in a synagogue teaching on the Sabbath. So I would assume this is about a week later. And a man with a withered right hand was there in the synagogue too. And we read in verse seven that the scribes and Pharisees were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, apparently, and like we just mentioned, they have been following Jesus from place to place, sabbath to sabbath, monitoring him. And they they know his MO. They know what he likes to do. They know, like with the paralytic, his teaching often was accompanied with healing. In fact, those two things typically went together. But again, like with the healing of the paralytic, Jesus knew the thoughts of his opponents. He knew they were looking for proof that he was a blasphemer and a Sabbath breaker. And by the way, if true, both those charges carried the death penalty. And again, guess what they accused him of at his arrest and his trial. And so Jesus called the man with a withered hand up to him. So Jesus turns the tables on his opponents and puts their question from the previous moment or the previous event back on them he says i ask you and remember he's told them he's lord of the sabbath that he's the god man so he's judging them at this point they're trying to judge him no 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 he's the judge he's the lord of the sabbath so he's judging them at this moment he says i ask you is it lawful that's their phrase is it lawful on the sabbath to do good or to do harm to save life or to destroy it. Now, Jews at this time held that God, despite it being a day of rest, because remember it's a Sabbath, that he continues to do two different works on the Sabbath. One, he makes alive, since sometimes children are born on the Sabbath, and that is a work of God. And two, he judges, since some people die, on the Sabbath and that too is a work of God. In other words, if it is acceptable for God to do these two works on the Sabbath, what does it mean if Jesus does them too? Again, the Pharisees fall silent and apparently uh, Jesus gave them at least a few moments to answer him, you know, kind of like how teachers sometimes will let the silence just be uncomfortable for a little while when they ask a question? And nobody answers. Nobody answers. Jesus then says, stretch out your hand. And the man did so, and his hand was instantly restored. Now keep in mind that this, I'm not gonna go into any detail about it, but if you're wanting to imagine the situation, you should imagine that that he has no use of his hand. And when he stretches it out, it is completely healed. Totally and completely. So, like with other healings, by his word, by his speaking alone, the man is instantly and completely brought to health. But the Pharisees' response to this miracle, like Jonah in response to God's kindness and mercy to Nineveh, was not worship. It's not amazement, like how most people have responded to these things. No, it's fury. They are livid, and the reason was not simply that Jesus had healed a man. The Pharisees were not so callous as to be against this sort of thing, or that His disciples had merely plucked a few heads of grain. It's it's what He was claiming about Himself, and in turn demonstrating through His miracles that, that Jesus is the Son of God the Christ, equal to the Father in glory and honor, and so he's also the Lord of the Sabbath who is ushering in the long-looked-for and promised new creation that every Jew at that time was looking for. Notice the Pharisees did not deny what they witnessed. They never say these things did not happen, ever. They denied what Jesus claimed these things meant. And as we saw last week, the Pharisees and scribes, they liked the old wine and the old wineskins, and they refused, like the Exodus generation, to receive the gift of life that God was freely offering them, offering them in His Son. He's just saying, here. You don't have to work for it. It's here. It's here for you. Do you want it? But as Jesus makes clear, He is the way, the truth. In the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. And this is just as true now as it was then. Nothing has changed in that regard, though 2,000 years have passed. The ancient uh, dictum, "Momento mori," roughly tra- translated as, "Remember that your death is inevitable," has actually been kind of making a comeback as of late. Over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so you can see it popping up in popular TV shows or among popular podcasters or what have you. And typically people equate that phrase more to a a bucket list um, mentality as in get in everything you can before it's too late. Make your mark. Make your life count. Leave a legacy because you only live once and then you're worm food. And, of course, that view of life assumes that when we die, it's the curtain call on life, a fade to black, and we merely cease to exist. But if that's true, then the reality is that all of life is meaningless, all of it. And things like good or evil or love or justice are merely social constructs that are arbitrary. Such things, no matter how much our so called intellectual elites insist otherwise, they're just moral fictions. They're stories we tell ourselves, lies that have the ring of being good, but they're lies. And we tell them in order to cope with the time that we have. So, why not shoot up a room full of people? Why not? If there's no life after death, then humans have no more value than a dog. And if you die in the process of your so-called crime, if it's actually a crime, there's no justice. And there's no consequences awaiting you in the next life because there is no next life. This life is all there is. So even when people insist that there is no God and no life after death, nobody actually lives that way because it's impossible. The ancient people who coined that phrase, memento mori, didn't share that modern view of life and death. In fact, they they knew better, far better than modern people do. And Moses in in Psalm 90, I think, gives a, a good example of how this works. Just listen to the imagery. This is beautiful poetry. Listen to his imagery for what human life is actually like. He writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And of course, he's talking about Israel at this point. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So these are the words of a man uh, who's been in the ground for thousands of years, who knew in his own lifetime that humans are to quote Elton John, like a candle in the wind. And yet, unlike Elton John, who wrote that as a young man, but is now 76, Moses knew that we should number our days, that is, we should live in light of our inevitable deaths, memento mori, not so we can live it up or create a legacy, as if that's a thing, but so that we may gain a heart of wisdom It's a very different thing. You know, many people will hear the sort of thing I'm saying, you know, like when pastors like me sometimes say things to get your attention like, you know, a hundred years from now, all new people. Think about that. A hundred years ago, same sanctuary, completely different pastor, completely different congregation, same place. A hundred years, all new people. And you know, you hear that and you get a little scared by the implications of it. But thoughts and feelings ebb, and by the time we've settled into our our post-Easter dinner nap, like waking up from a dream, it's over, it's gone. And we've turned back to life as usual. And still others will roll their eyes or scoff, assuming it's Easter, he's a pastor, he's using scare tactics in order to get a response Never you mind the reality of the data. If we've got time, pastors, they're such alarmists. You know, Elton John originally wrote Candle in the Wind about Marilyn Monroe, who died at the age of 36. Cut down in her prime, and he re-recorded the song in 1997, which is the version most of us really know, after the death of Princess Diana, who also died at the age of 36. You know, the assumption that someone died too young is the assumption that we have the right to a long life, which, again, is a moral fiction. Who says we have a right to a long life? Who who says it's unfair if we die young? There's nothing in nature that demands we have long lives or short ones. Or more foolishly, we think these things happen to other people, not to us. You know, Easter is the proclamation that the One who made, made the heavens and the earth has provided life and His Son to a people who are enslaved to sin and death and cannot escape it. You know, these Sabbath controversies in Luke, far from being strange, ancient Jewish legal debates, get at the central problem every single human faces. We are all candles in the wind. And all of us, sooner or later, will return to dust. And at best, we might maybe get 100 years, but if current statistics are right, lifespans in America are dropping and fast. What Jesus claimed and what the Pharisees rejected is that in Him, and in Him alone, life is found. He alone is the bread of life that can sustain you both in this life and the life to come. He alone gives rest in both this life and the life to come. He alone, though we die and we will, can resurrect us to life forever in the new creation that is already here, is already on evidence, but is not yet fully here. So as Moses asked God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, so we pray too. So we pray too. So for some of you, that may mean your very first actual prayer. Your very first actual prayer to God in which you look to him in faith. And you know what? It can be as simple as, Lord, I need you. Take my life and work in me. As Jesus gave his life for me, I offer my life to you. It does not need to be complicated. For some of you, it may mean that you're turning back to God after an absence from him. You know, maybe like what happened with so many Christians during the pandemic. You've enjoyed the terms you've set for your life. You've liked doing your own thing. You've you've gotten used to having God as kind of an afterthought, the white noise in the background so you can sleep. But like the parable of the prodigal son, perhaps you're starting to see the utter foolishness of such a life, no matter how comfortable it may feel to you. Let me assure you, like with Matthew, God does not shame you in you coming back. He's overjoyed. He runs to meet you at your repentance, and he cannot wait to welcome you home. But still, for others of you, like Moses, perhaps you've been walking with God for a long time. So your prayer is to be deepened in your love and your understanding of God and his word and his ways. That's a good prayer, too. see, Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who died on the sixth day, remained in the ground in death on the Sabbath, and was raised to new life on the eighth day, ushering in new creation, is for you. Like with the Lord's Supper, when we distribute the elements, He is for you. You For ancient and moderns alike, memento mori means death gets the last word. That's what that means. Death gets the last word. But with the Lord of the Sabbath, memento mori means death is like a Sabbath rest that leads to resurrection, and so death will never have the last word on us. There is no God like our God, none, who is so full of steadfast, loving kindness and faithfulness that looks on our sin and our disease and our brokenness and our inevitable deaths, and he laments And he wants to do something about it. And he has. And his son, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray to him as we close our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the life we have been given now in Jesus Christ. Because it it is a life that looks forward to what we will have in Jesus Christ at our resurrection. For all of us, we endure pain and suffering of varying degrees, of course. Of course, we we deal with bad prognosis. We deal with unexpected failures, unexpected sins, unexpectedly being sinned against, news that we cannot possibly deal with. And yet you can, and you are with us in the midst of us. You don't promise to take those things away. No, you promise to be with us in the midst of them and that they will not be the end of our story. We thank you for your grace, your kindness, and your mercy. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.